Hey, my name is Brianna, and you're listening to the FCC Grayson Podcast. God is doing some incredible things here at First Church. To learn more about FCC and maybe plan your visit, head on over to FCCGrayson.com. We hope today's message gives you hope, inspires, and encourages you in your walk with God. Let's dive in to today's message. Well, good morning again. Uh, we are going to be going into a sermon series, a look over the next little bit on the book of Daniel. So we encourage you guys to go ahead, read as much as you can in advance um, throughout these next few weeks in the book of Daniel. Uh, if you want to follow along uh, on, the, on the new website, on the new app, uh, there is a section on there for message notes. You can take notes, follow along, and then at the end of them, you can send them to yourself via email. It, now, if you attempted to do that last week and the email did not arrive in your inbox, that was not necessarily your user error. That could have been a developer's user error that prevented that from happening. It has been remedied. Um, so my apologies, uh, but that is, is up and going now. But if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is an Old Testament prophetic book. Um, it is, if you go to the New Testament, if you get to like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just kind of go to the left just a little bit and that will take you into the general area of Daniel. Now, over this whole series, one of the... Um, really, we're going to look at Daniel, him being a man of character, him being a man of conviction, and the things that really um, you know, give us an example into the type of person that Daniel was. And, and really, we're going to be coming, all of this is going to be centered around Daniel chapter 6, verse 3, where it says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So this is a story that leads us up into revealing these great qualities. Uh, some translation says that he was such a man of excellence uh, and that his character drove him. Um, it, guys, if you don't mind, can we bring all the lights up in the house, please, that way that, uh, that we can all see the, the print. <laughs> now, let's get a magnifying glass uh, so we can all see the print. No, but um, if you, um, you know, go ahead and turn back a few chapters. I just wanted to throw that verse out there because that's going to kind of carry us from week to week, this, this, these excellent qualities, this character of Daniel. But we're going to be going out of uh, chapter 1 this morning. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, 
quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we, uh, we come to you now as we have read out of your word, as we look into this text and into this passage about the story um, chiefly of a man named Daniel. Uh, and God, I just pray that as we look through this book, that you would open the truth in this to us, that you would reveal it to our hearts, to our minds, to our spirits, and God, help it to draw us closer to you, to your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray right now that, that, you would, um, that you would speak through me, that you would inspire me to speak your words. Holy Spirit, I ask that, um, that you use my voice to convey your message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We all kind of live at a place and in a culture and a lifestyle of compromise. And if you don't believe that you are a person of compromise, then you have never raised a toddler. I could go on for the rest of my time about the compromises we make with those cute little creatures we call toddlers. But I will give you the first and primary example. How many of you have ever done this one? Okay, just three more bites. And just three more bites. Bites. A, a one. Oh, good. Good, good. You know, at some level in my life, that stopped with me. I don't know why, but Kim never looks at me now and goes, Ben, you need to take three more bites, okay? Just three more. If she does anything, it's the opposite of that. It's like, would you quit making trips into the kitchen? But we learn to compromise, and, and, and that, that kind of carries over, even into our relationship with God. As a teenager, Here's one of the areas of compromise that I was guilty of because, you know, I lived back in a glorious time before caller ID. I lived in a glorious time before you had people's information stored. You knew exactly who was calling, when they called, where it was coming from. So you could just call people and them not have a clue who was on the other end of the phone. I know, guys, for those of you who don't remember that, it's archaic. I understand. I don't know how we survived back then. But somehow we made it through. But one of the areas of compromise in my relationship with God one time was I remember us having this conversation, me and God. Well, it really wasn't even a conversation. It was just me talking to God. God, because I really, really liked this girl that I was getting ready to call. And I had this conversation, God, if you just let me date her. Oh, Life would be perfect. God, if you just make this happen, I promise. You all know what's getting ready to come, don't you? I 
promise that I will never ask you for anything ever, ever again. We learn this art of compromise. And in our society, we're kind of groomed with this, that we we take the path of least resistance. Whatever's the simplest, whatever's the easiest, whatever uh, helps us the most, or whatever keeps friction down to a minimum, that's what we want to do. So we will learn to compromise and make sure that, hey, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt me too bad, then, then I'll go along with it. You know, and we, we see this of all shapes and sizes. We learn to lie. Have you ever noticed that the, the sweet little toddlers, that you never have to teach them to lie? Just all of a sudden, one day it just happens. And you know that they're lying. And they know that you know that they're lying. But it doesn't matter. They just keep going. But we learn to lie. We learn to, we learn to cheat. We learn to steal. We learn to... Do these things that that benefit us. And then we may grow a little bit older and then we may develop a relationship with Christ and we think, oh, well, okay, well, I need to maybe go away from, you know, this cheating thing or this outright lying thing or this stealing thing. Those aren't the greatest thing in my relationship with Christ and it doesn't really, you know, help me to be a better person or be a better Christian. So we'll stop doing those things, but then we fall into these traps of maybe... Not necessarily sharing the whole truth. Maybe we'll kind of dabble into some gray areas. Maybe sometimes that we're not necessarily being forthright completely. But yet we know that if we share the whole truth or if we speak our mind or if we stand by our convictions or if we do this certain thing to the way that we know we should do it, then it's not necessarily going to benefit us. You see, our biggest problem has been, always will be, with ourselves. My biggest enemy is, is not Satan. Your biggest enemy, enemy is not the devil. Your biggest enemy is your flesh. Your biggest enemy is you. Because I'm prideful. I have a tendency to look out for Ben more than anyone else. I have this wiring that wants me to make sure that everything's good for me And I I have this temptation of always wanting to frame things or to move things or to, to present things in a way that's going to be the best possible for me. You see, we learn how to manipulate. And I think that that bleeds over into our church. And not just this church, but all churches. We We see things. Sometimes, and maybe it's not the most popular stance for us to take, that there would be a stance in God's word that we know we need to take. But maybe, maybe we just need to round off the edges just a little bit. Maybe we just need to, you know, kind of pad this. Just maybe, maybe just make it a little bit more palatable. Maybe put a little bit of sugar on top of it, and that, that, that will help it. And then one area of compromise leads to another area of compromise. And this is both true for our church and for our personal lives, our professional lives, our family lives. That when we begin to compromise one, then it becomes easier to compromise down the road. And I, we could go all from cover to cover in this book, in this scripture, and I could give you examples of this. But the reality of it is, is scripture calls us to do the very opposite of that, to be uncompromising, to be people of conviction, to be people who not only hold on to the truth, but share and speak the truth in love. It doesn't call for us ever to compromise who we are 
or of who Christ is or the truth that he represents and that he is. But yet we find ourselves always leaning kind of that opposite way. I ran across this this week. It says, the conviction of an uncompromising life is based upon an absolute obedience to God and his word. When the Bible says something, don't compromise that and hold your conviction with love. David Mathis of DesiringGod.com wrote this, and I, I just love this, and I, I want to read it again. That there's, The conviction of an uncompromising life is based upon an absolute obedience to God and to his word. When the Bible says something, do not compromise that and hold your conviction with love. Now, I don't think that there's any better example of staying true to one's conviction than what we find in that passage out of Daniel. Now, I stopped at a certain point for a reason this morning. I stopped at verse 8 because I kind of want to set things up for us this week and so we can take a look and really begin to draw from this scripture as we go along. The first couple verses gives us the history of what's going on. It tells us about the Babylonians, about Nebuchadnezzar going in and overtaking the southern kingdom of Israel, which is Judah. The northern kingdom had fallen some time before that. But it talks about that he goes in and he doesn't just overthrow and displace everyone, but it says that he goes in there and he takes what many historians, theologians, and archaeologists believe to be anywhere between 50 to 75 young men, teenage men around 13 to 17 years old. It says, bring them and bring them back to Babylon because they were going to assimilate them. They were going to culturize them. They were going to train them. They were going to make these Israelites Babylonians by their education, by the way that they thought, by the way that they lived, by what they ate. They wanted to completely and totally assimilate these young men into their culture. So we see that, you know, these young men were being, being subjected and being exposed to, uh, you know, different teachings in the Babylonian culture. And not only were they exposed to their architectural, their agricultural, their scientific stuff, and even their theological stuff, the Babylonians were also experts in magic. They were experts in sorcery and enchantments and in omens and incantations and prayers and all of these things. They were experts in glass making, and I could go on and on and on, but what they were doing was they were taking these young men, the best, quote unquote, the best that the southern kingdom of Israel had to offer, and they were indoctrinating them with their culture in the most formative years of their lives. And then scripture begins to tell us that there were some of these young men, there were four of these young men who stood out amongst the rest of them. And the reason that they stood out wasn't necessarily because of their amount of skill. But they began to push back just a little bit against this indoctrination and this brainwashing and this assimilation that was taking place. And one of these young men was named Daniel. So when we get to this place, it says that they had taken them and was instructing them for three years. Three years about what was going to be, they were going to be trained in. One of the things that, that happened in their lives was, if you notice the, I believe it's verse 6 here, or verse 7, 
there was a name change that took place. You see, with Daniel, and I'm going to give you some meanings to it, because back in that culture, I mean, it's important to us what, what we name a child now, you know, what we name our kids, but back then, it was a really big deal because it defined who you were as a person. Daniel, his name meant that God is judge, or God is just. They changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means Baal provides. Baal was one of the Babylonian gods. So it went from my name, my person, my identity is that God is just, God is judge, to they're changing it to my life speaks that Baal provides. The next name that we see changed is we see the name of Hananiah. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious or the Lord is full of grace. And that was changed to Shadrach, which basically meant that it's a derivative of a couple different gods in the Babylonian culture. The first one was Aku and the other one was Marduk. Marduk is kind of a kind of a dissimulation from that. So what they're doing here is they're taking this message of his identity, of his life, of being that the Lord is full of grace, and they're elevating one of their gods in his life. The name Michel, and I, I, I love this, it means who is what the Lord is. Who, basically, who is like God? Can you imagine that being your name and your identity, that your life purpose is, de- is declaring and proclaiming who is like God? Is there anyone like God? And then that's changed to Meshach. And that means who is what Aku is. So you see what they're doing here. They're taking God out of their identity. And then lastly, Azariah means the Lord is my helper. And they changed it to Abednego. And listen, I grew up, I grew up for so many years, um, for whatever reason, I always thought I was a takeout menu item or something you could get through a drive-through. I thought that's what my name meant. Because for years I said Abednego. Whenever, <laughs> whenever there are more. Uh, then you get anything else, just move on, all right? But Abednego, that means servant of Nego or servant of Nebo. And Nebo was the son of the god Baal. So what's happening here is they're not only changing what they're learning. They're not only changing what they think. They're not only changing all of these things, but they're actually trying to change their identities. From what they were in their Hebrew names to what they wanted them to be as Babylonian citizens. I don't think that it's real hard for us to understand that the culture, the influence, and the assimilation tactics that the Babylonians used, I don't think it really, should be really difficult for us to see that we live in a culture that does the same thing to us as believers, that we live in, quote-unquote, Babylon, in a culture that wants us to compromise, in a culture that wants us to change, in a culture that wants us to learn everything other than what is in this book, in a culture that desires 
and requires of us so many times that we change the very nature of who we are. They don't, the, the world, the fleshly world, the sinful world does not want you living in the identity that Jesus Christ provides for you. And they will do everything that the world can to get you as far away from that identity as possible. So we have these four young men. And, and, and an interesting side note, I, I never really picked up on this until Jesse and I were talking this week. He said, do you find it interesting that we currently call Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names? But we call Daniel by his Hebrew name. I think I know why, because they're easier to pronounce. But I just thought that was a little interesting side note there. But I love that whenever this is introduced, it says that in verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And when he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself that way. Now next week we'll look at the rest of this story about the rest of him you know, refusing the food and the outcome of that. But this caught my attention this week because really what we've seen here in this passage of scriptures, we've seen that there have been three asks or three requirements, three worldly things that they have been asked to do. Is number one, that worldly wisdom was to be taught to them. That they were going to teach them the ways of the Babylonians. They were going to take three years and instruct them on their ways and in their wisdom. Next, there were three worldly or four worldly names that were given to these young men. And we see that played out right here. But then we see that worldly food and drink were to be served to them. And at that point, all of a sudden there's kind of a record scratch that takes place here in Scripture because there's no pushback at all whenever they change what they're learning. Doesn't seem like the four young men really push back a whole lot on that. Whenever they change their names, it seems like there's not a whole lot of pushback, if any at all, there. But then when we get to the food and drink, all of a sudden Daniel stands up and is like, wait a minute. So we've seen worldly wisdom that's being taught to them. We see a new worldly identity that's been given to them. And then when we see worldly food introduced to the situation, that's when the brakes get put on by these young men. I thought that was interesting. And I want to kind of go back to the very beginning of the message where I used that statement, you know, that we were talking about, let me scroll back up here where did it go it's here I've got a highlight there it is the end of that says when the Bible says something don't compromise that and hold your convictions with love when this word tells us something do not compromise it do not compromise the truth that you find in this word and I believe it's really critical that, 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 that last statement of, you know, hold your conviction, but hold it with love. See, here's why I think that Daniel began to push back about the food. 
Because even in Daniel's time, the history that they would have had, the word, the, the word of God, the law of God that they would have had, really never mentions anything about what you can or cannot learn. There's not a whole lot of language as to if you learn about this, then it's good and right, and if you learn about this, it's a sin. It's not of God. Nor does it really articulate anything about a name change. It doesn't say that when you have this name, then you're doing God's will, but when the culture calls you this, then you're sinning. There's nothing stated in God's word about that that I could find, at least anyhow. But then when we get to the food, there is quite a bit that's said in the law of God about what kind of food and drink you should have. Not only from a dietary standpoint, but maybe the biggest one is Scripture, the law of God says that you shall not eat of any food that has been sacrificed to idols. You shall not eat of something that's been sacrificed or given in name of an idol or a pagan false god. So it's at that point when something comes in front of them, when they're asked to do something that goes directly against the word of God, that's the moment that Daniel stands up and says, I can't do that. I can't do that. I think that whenever we see this, this moment in Daniel's life, we see someone, a young man. Daniel was, again, remember, as a teenager, most likely 13, 14, 15 years old at this time. And he makes this stance on his conviction to the truth that's been revealed to him through the word of God. You see, this morning, Jody, if you would put that last, that last quote up there for me, please. The one right before that. The one before that, I'm sorry. There it is. No matter how unfair, no matter how bad your past or your present situation is, God expects us to stand on our convictions in him. Because we all have things going on. We all have situations. Some things in your past have happened that are far worse than anything that's happened in my past. You may have faced things that some of the rest of us in here have never seen, have never gone through. But the reality of it is, is no matter how bad or how mild our situations and our circumstances is, God expects us to stand on our convictions in him. And another thing that I learned this week that I, that I found very fascinating, because really, you know, if we think about it in America, you know, we're free to worship here. We don't face a great deal of persecution for believing in Jesus Christ. We, we may get a little mockery. People may poke a little bit of fun at us. But if you do some research as to what's going on across the globe for people who follow Jesus, there are others in many nations who are legitimately being persecuted. Bodily harm, death, being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. In those countries where... You know, that happens where the persecution is severe. The main source of encouragement, the two portions of the Bible that those groups and, and, and churches of believers, what they pull on for encouragement is the book of Revelation and the last of the book of Daniel. Because it focuses on future hope. And it focuses and details 
future victory in the life of a believer. That was a sobering thought to me this week when I thought about, you know, there's very few times that I'm sitting here and I'm feeling, you know, maybe down, maybe a little bit down, maybe a little bit low, and I'm going, oh, God, I'm going to turn to God's Word to get some encouragement. Let me flip on over here to Revelation. I don't know if I've ever done that in my life. But there are people who do because they draw hope from a future with Jesus Christ, and they hold firm in their convictions in him in the present, no matter what the severity of their situation is. So this morning, a question I want us to ask is, where do we see Jesus in this passage? Out of all of Scripture, from the very beginning, at the beginning of Genesis, all the way through to the end of Revelation, it's a book about Jesus Christ. And we need to see Jesus. So where do we see Jesus in this passage? I think it's somewhat evident when we look at the story. Young men who were taken from their rightful home and go and be displaced in a foreign land to live for God, to stand up for God, and to make sacrifices for God. I think we kind of see a foreshadowing there of the Son of God who came from his rightful home in heaven. The reason that he came was because there was no way that you or I could ever, within our own power, restore the broken relationship between us and God. And that had been proven for thousands of years. So Christ comes. He comes into a foreign land, a world that's not his home, a place that's not his own, and he is persecuted. He is mocked, he is beaten, he is tortured, and he does pay the price for you and I. When he came and he gave his life on Calvary's cross because you, me, and everyone else in this place stands in need of a Savior. And this morning, I'm going to ask the praise team if they will to go ahead and come back up. This morning... We are going to open this time up. We are going to worship God once again in song. And we're going to praise our Savior for what he's done for us. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with that one who has come and has given his life so that you could live in eternity with him, then there's no better time than this morning to accept the sacrifice of Jesus and his son. Will you pray with me again real quick? God, thank you for your son, Jesus. God, I thank you that he is not just here. He did not come for the healthy. He didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for the ones that had it figured out. He came for people like me, for everyone else here living a life of sin bound for an eternity apart from you but God through your love through your mercy and your grace you came so that we faulted fallible and messed up people could call on your name and have a promise of eternity with you in Jesus' name, amen.